Romans chapter 12, uh, we, I think, finish Romans 12, 1 and 2 today. Uh, I told you several weeks ago that we'd be walking through basically a, a, a sentence at a time, uh, and I believe that is right uh, and necessary uh, because the more I've delved into these two verses, the more I realize that there may not be a pair of verses in all of the Bible that come at us and speak as directly to us today as these verses do. Given everything that's going on in our world and in our country, in our city, I think we need to truly grasp what it is that God has for us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Word of God, rightly understood, is by design and its very nature relevant at all times and across all cultures. That's a bold statement. It's a bold statement. Anywhere, anytime, this word is relevant to the people of those places and those ages. It's a glorious book given to us and sustained for us by God the Holy Spirit himself. And as I've said to you, fewer passages speak to our day and age more relevantly than these two verses. This is why we are paying such careful attention to every word in these precious verses. Since the first of the year, we've heard the Apostle Paul appeal. He's appealed to us. He hasn't come with the hammer. He appeals to brothers and sisters in the faith. I appeal to you. And what is the basis of his appeal? By the mercies of God. He doesn't say by the command of God or by the wrath of God. He says, by the mercies of God, I appeal to you. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I'm much more receptive to somebody's appeal if it's wrapped in mercy rather than wrath. Though there's a place for both. But if somebody, as my wife said in the kitchen, I don't know what the context was, but yesterday she said, you win more with honey than you, you, what is it? You win more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. I said, what are you saying to me, honey? Therefore, by the mercies of God, and we saw that we're to present our bodies, our whole persons. It struck me over the last few days as I, I've given thought to some of these phrases. Think about, think about these Roman house churches now in Rome, right? Okay, bustling metropolis that it was back in the day. And think about the words coming out of perhaps Phoebe's mouth. We learn in 16, Romans 16, 1, that Phoebe may have been the carrier of this letter. She may have been the one that read it to the house churches there in Rome. But here, to this eclectic group of house churches, similar to this group here right now, it's, it, it's read, present your bodies. Now, it struck me that there were probably prostitutes in these houses, male and female. There were probably slaves in these houses. And there were probably elites in this house. Can you imagine this? An exercise that I put myself through regularly, and I exhort you as well to put yourself through this regularly. Take a passage of Scripture and ask yourself, put together a list of different folks, folks that are different from you, and ask yourself, how would blank read this verse? I do that an awful lot. So, so now I'm reading this and I'm saying to myself, okay, how would a prostitute here offer your body? 
Wow. How would an elite, how would the upper echelon here present your bodies as sacrifices? I would imagine, at least initially, they, they might have been put off a little bit by that. That's a common thing to do. And how about a slave? How about a slave sitting in that room hearing, offer your body, so, well, I do that every day. But then there's the phrase, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That would have jarred them a little bit, as living sacrifices. But then these words, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Wait a minute, now a slave is being called holy and pleasing to God. A prostitute who routinely makes his or her living by offering their bodies. And now they're hearing, I can offer my body in a way that's honoring and pleasing to God. The gospel is transformative, folks. It speaks to everyone in this room right now, regardless of what your lot in life is. Offer your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular. We've accentuated that point over the weeks. Meaning what? Meaning that as you and I offer ourselves wholeheartedly, whole bodily to the Lord, we as a collective become a sacrifice that the world sees. I love how Paul never lets the individual run wild. You're part of something, as you heard John read, and God willing, we'll begin to look at next week, beginning in Romans 12, verse 3, when he starts talking about gifts and being members of one another. The gospel cuts hard across the grain of American culture and pick yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of thing. A self-made men and women the Bible knows nothing about. You offer yourself so that you can be part of something larger, which when together is viewed by a lost and dying world, says, wow, you have a community that's different from mine. You guys are out of step with the world. You care for one another and love one another. Your, your Lord is Jesus, not Caesar. That must get you in trouble. This is what we've been looking at. Do not be conformed. Stop being conformed. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But be transformed. Not much difference between those two words, conformed and transformed. They both have those powers. The world has got conforming powers. Each and every one of us sitting and this one standing in this room right now has to a certain degree and is to a certain degree being conformed by that out there that you heard me pray over. There's no avoiding that. It's like asking a fish to survive outside of water. But, as I've said repeatedly, there is the resistive power given to us by God to stop being conformed by the pattern of this age. Our values are different. Our, checks, our checkbooks ought to look different from an unbeliever. Our viewing habits ought to look different from an unbeliever. If they don't, then we ought to take a step back and ask ourselves, how deep is this conformity into my life? Instead, be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. To what end? And that's where we're, that's where we're heading today. Growing into what we possess. I made that point yesterday. Sometimes, as parents, we've bought clothing just a tad too big for our kid. Oh, mom, oh, dad, this jacket's too big. Don't worry about it. In six weeks, you're going to fit into it perfectly. Well, it's true of the Christian life as well. What you're wearing right now is a little baggy. It's not an insult, but it gives you room to grow into it. 
And that's exactly what the process is that's being described here right now. Today, today Paul teaches us the goal of these processes. By testing, you, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the last phrase in these two verses that we'll look at today to finish our mini-series within the series. The goal of offering your bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord, the goal of not conforming, the goal of being transformed is that you might be able, by testing, to discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What's the implication? That if you're, if you're being conformed, if you're not being transformed, you won't understand what the will of God is. I want to know what the will of God is. And I know that you do too. There are three questions that this one phrase raises for us. And we'll look at those right after this quick review. Last week... We talked about fighting against conformity to this present age, but we were to do that by the mercies of God. Remember, we always talk about the horse being in front of the cart. The horse, if you please, being the mercies of God. They enable us to obey, to strive, to become increasingly like Jesus. It's not reverse. I say that all the time. You put it in reverse, you lose the entirety of Christianity. If you have to strive in order to receive the mercies of God, then you've got the gospel entirely backwards. The only reason why I can exhort you to good works, that I can exhort you to work hard, is because God's already at work in your life. Paul said that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he says in Philippians 2.12. But you can't stop. Philippians 2.13, you can do that. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you to will and to do that which is in accord with his good pleasure. Do not confuse those. You can work out your salvation because he's at work in you. That is an amen, isn't it? My goodness, the pressure's off. Wow, and we're free to fight against conformity by the mercies of God. So too, we're free to fight for transformation by the mercies of God. And we ask the question, which habits of ours need to be transformed? We can't just simply say, as you heard me pray, I'm coming to very heavy personal conviction with regard to this as, you, as I've delved into these kinds of things. What are the habits that shape me? Because these habits have power, conforming power, transforming power as well. So what about our viewing habits? What's going in? Remember we talked about gigo, garbage in, garbage out. How much time are you spending in front of the screens? And when you're in front of those screens, what's on those screens that's going in? That's forming you. That's conforming you to the ways of the world. What about our listening do you love to listen to the sweet morsels of gossip that, that Solomon tells us in the book of Proverbs? Go down deep. And they taste so sweet when they're first there, only to corrupt you and make you nauseous. How are your listening habits? What is it that you're listening to? Are you just tuned in to CNN? Are you just tuned in to Fox Network? Are you just tuned in to OAN? Are you just tuned in to all of those so that you hear what you want to hear in your own little echo chamber? How are your listening habits? Are they feeding your soul or are they making you increasingly angry and divisive? 
This is for real. This is why I said these two verses could not be more huge given where we are right now. How about our speaking? That, that all goes, this all ties together, doesn't it? How are your speaking habits? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that we ought to drop grace every time we open our mouths. Is that true of you? May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Can we say that? Can we pray that? What is it that comes out of your mouth? What's the habits that you have in speaking? Are you just talking nonsense all day long? Or is what you speak edifying? Does it lift up the other hearer in our midst? What about our eating habits? Those are in, we, are body, we are an embodied soul or an ensouled body, however you want to put it. If we're abusing our bodies because of the way that we eat, we're, we're out of step with the Spirit of God. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that your body is the temple of the living God? And he plays there. He talks about individually, and then he talks corporately. Your body is a temple of the living God. This body is the temple of the living God. Yes, what we put in our mouths, what we eat, does have an aspect to our growth and holiness. And it's something we ought to take very seriously. Reading. This will be the last one. I, I know I'm meddling right now. Reading. What do, you, what do you read? Are you reading? Some of you may not be readers. That's fine. Uh, not everybody is. I couldn't imagine life without reading. I would rather die, sir. But what do you read? Assuming you do read, what, what do you fill your mind with? Are you reading trash? Or are you reading things of substance? My wife and I create a, a, a creative tension between the two of us. I can't stop reading theology. She can't stop reading fiction. She's, she's trained in, in language arts, and she loves to read fiction. Honey, you're not reading enough fiction. I got too much theology to read. Oh, by the way, you're not reading enough theology. And so it goes. It's not that I dislike fiction, but man, have you seen all the books that I have to get through? And she says the same thing to me. We become what we behold. We become like what we behold. And I read for you Psalm 135. And indeed, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're told by Paul that beholding the glory of God, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Is that not fresh air, brothers and sisters? 2 Corinthians 3.18. Take that home. Take that home because you are in the process of being transformed by virtue of being in Christ from one degree of glory to the next. So we're growing into what God is already doing in our lives. Praise His name. This is not do it all by yourself. God's at work in your life and He's doing it. You become like what you behold. Let's behold the glory of God as displayed for us in the person of Jesus as recorded for us in Holy Scriptures. Okay, so here's the purpose. Ever so briefly. The, the purpose of all of this, the purpose, the reason why we fight against conformity and fight for transformation, we do this so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable 
and perfect. I love, I love the historical books in the Old Testament. I did a series a number of years ago. Remember, we called it the boring books of the Old Testament. You know, you're reading the, you're reading the Bible through, through, through the year and you're doing all right in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus is a little bump and then Numbers starts slowing you down. You get revived a little bit in Deuteronomy. Joshua's pretty exciting. Judges, man, they were nasty people. Ruth, we all love Ruth. And then, and then you hit First and Second Samuel. Oh, David, pretty cool until he isn't cool. And then you hit kings, like. <laughs> but in First Kings chapter three, yes, I said First Kings. In First Kings chapter three, beginning in verse six, David's gone. Solomon, David's greater son one from whom an even greater son will come, is now put in place as king. And so he prays. Okay, you've just been made king. What are you going to pray? Here's what Solomon prays. 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Solomon said, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you've kept him, for him, this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Verse 8, 1 Kings 3. Your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered, accounted for, for multitude. And now here, after giving thanks and a display of humility, here's his request. 1 Kings 3.9 Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern, to govern your people, here it is, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this your great people. King Solomon wisest man in the world at the time asks for discernment in order to lead and to guide. I want to believe that Paul had Solomon somewhere in the back of his mind when he wrote this because he now brings us to the conclusion that fighting against conformity and desiring to be transformed now enables you to have razor-sharp discernment. Discernment about what God's will is about what is good and acceptable and perfect. We would do well to follow Solomon's example. So here are the three questions as we wind our time down here. Here are the three questions. The first one is, we have to ask this, it seems to me, what exactly do we mean by discernment? What is the discipline of discernment? Let me give you kind of a textbook definition on this so you understand. You probably have a decent working idea of what discernment is or discernment, uh, you know, making good decisions. And that's fair enough. That's good enough. Let's nuance it a little bit more. It's to prove. It's to prove something, to examine something, to test it, to find out the worth of something. That's what the ESV Study Bible gives us in a little footnote. It's to find out the worth of something. So when Paul writes that you might be able to discern the will of God, what Paul is saying is that this will give you the stuff that you need in order to find the worth of God's will for your life that you might test it and approve it. Now, the testing is literally not there. 
It just simply means that you might discern the will of God, but the implication of the word in the original language is that you discern something by testing it. By, by putting it through the, through the test, you scratch something. Is that a real diamond or is that a fake? You, you, you find its, it, its genuineness. And that process is the process of discernment. Is this a fake or is this a real deal? By testing, or as the NIV says, you, that you'd be, you be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good and pleasing and perfect will. One of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. I read it for you regularly. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, is an exact explanation of what it is I'm talking about. Listen to how this pastor describes it. Hebrews 5, 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. Now he's talking to believers. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to take you back, to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Now, he's a good pastor. He's rebuking them a little bit, but he's not throwing them under the bus. And he says, okay, if we need to walk this back, let's walk it back. Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. This is why I, I do get on you a little bit. If, you're, if your week-to-week devotions amount to nothing more than a page in our daily bread, I want to gently, gently nudge you along and suggest that you need to be taking something more solid than that baby's milk. That will not mature you, particularly those of us who are getting gray. We want to finish well. We want to be reading deeply and listening sharply as well. We need to be taking in things of more substance. And now 5.14 of Hebrews, but solid food is for the mature. Now watch what happens in the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment, watch now, trained. You see that? Trained. You don't wake up in the morning and automatically be more discerning. You have to, it has to be trained for those who have their powers of discernment trained, how? By constant practice. To what end? To distinguish good from evil. You see what I'm saying? What a beautiful verse. Hebrews 5.14, I go back to it all the time. Lord, give me the practice that I need to increase my discernment. One of the compliments I get paid often it happens every once in a while, is that I'm wise. I hear that more almost than anything else. And I realize it's because I've worked so hard at this. I've prayed over these kinds of things and I've realized, Lord, I want to be discerning. And so trials come and it gives me the opportunity to be tested and, 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 and sharpen my focus with regard to the human condition and how the kingdom comes in a person's life. That doesn't happen overnight. It comes with the graying or balding head. It means we've got a few miles on the tires. And the church needs you. Church, those of you in this room right now, those of you out there in live stream land, if you're aging, age well. The church needs you. There's no cruising. There's no retirement here. You retire when you go to glory. We'll talk more about that in just, in just a moment. It is to be able to tell the difference between truth and error. But it's even more than that. 
It's the capacity to distinguish, as we saw in Solomon, the difference between good and evil. I'm going to tweak it even more. It's the ability to discern between good and better. I'm going to tweak it one more time. It's even the capacity to discern the difference between better and best. That's what discernment is. Many of us can tell the difference between good and evil. Oh, that's wrong. I'm not doing that. That's good. I'll do that. Ah. But is there a nuance over here? Is there something that we all need to go to that next level? It's to be able to tell the difference. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5:21 to test everything and to hold fast to what is good. There it is, right there. Right there. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. If the church was doing this right now, we wouldn't have the problem of trying to figure out why so many Christians are whole hog holding on to conspiracy theories right now. I'm going to say it out loud. It's, an, it's, an, it's just a staggering thing for me to understand how Christians have been so gullible. You know why? Because they're not exercising their powers of discernment. They're being conformed to the pattern of this age. They're not bringing biblical principles, they're not bringing a biblical narrative into their evaluation of things that they're hearing and seeing. That's what Paul says. Test everything. Test everything that I'm saying to you right now. If you can't, if you can't put your finger on the Bible and say this is where he's getting it, then reject it. I say that to you all the time. Don't take my word for it because I'm going to let you down. I will let you down. But insofar as this finger stays on that text, it's on you. Gloriously so. To walk in obedience of faith invites nothing but joy, even though it might cost you your life. John writes, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, test the spirits to see if they're from God. If the church was doing this right now, you know how much headache we'd be avoiding? You heard me pray. There's a spirit of this age. There's a spirit that hovers over Staten Island. There's a spirit that hovers over every square inch of this globe. And it's hell-bent. This is for real, people. We're in an all-out war. And Paul and John say, test it. Put it to the test. Does it stand up to the scriptures? Hold fast to what is good. Test the spirits to see if they're from God. Test me. Am I from God? Or am I leading you astray? You have a, a, a right and a responsibility to hold me and the elders accountable. If we're not teaching you and feeding you from the word of God, leave. I mean it. But if we are, stay and grow. Become like Jesus. Dwell on these things is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. It's, it's a beautiful verse. It's on, it's on my desk at home. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about, here it is, set your mind on these things. 
So ask yourself, put Philippians 4.8 on your bathroom mirror. Put, put, put Philippians 4.8 in the corner of your 72-inch large screen plasma biflex thing you've got going on with 9,000 cable channels. You don't even, you know, the, the remote's as big as my pulpit. I just love television. Put Philippians 4.8 in the corner of your plasma screen and ask yourself what you're watching right now. Is that lovely? Is that honorable? Is it commendable? Does it have any excellence? If it does, latch onto it. Don't let it go. If it doesn't, you're conforming. Maybe just this much, but you're conforming. It doesn't mean you can't watch Seinfeld. It doesn't mean you can't watch a football game. It doesn't mean you can't watch a cooking show. That's not at all what I'm saying. Because there are, there are redemptive elements to those things. But if you're watching things and you know in your heart of hearts that you're wasting your life right now, give it up. Give it up. You've got one life to live, and you don't want to give up two hours to a movie that's trash. I've said to my wife too many times, well, there's two hours of my life I'm not going to get back. It doesn't mean there's no place in your life, please be sure you hear me, it does not mean that there's no place in your life for some form of entertainment. But I'm telling you now that it is not neutral. People are not paid six and seven digit salaries on Madison Avenue to just give you something that doesn't have an agenda. Everything has an agenda. It's going to either lead you to Christ or away from him. Pray that the power of discernment would be increased in your life. Second question is what, is, what is the revealed will of God? That's a good question, because you hear me ask the question, what's the will of God? Almost everyone in the room, including myself, I almost guarantee you, sees a dot, dot, dot for my life. That's usually how we types talk about it. What is the will of God for my life? Fair question, an absolutely fair question, but it's far, far from the only one that the scriptures talk about when the words will of God comes up. There's the Christian's personal, Christian's personal life with regard to the will of God. Watch this now. You're going to be surprised. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 now says this. For the will of God is your sanctification. So what is the will of God for your life? At a personal level, it's your sanctification. Everything that, everything that God ordains in your life is so that you would grow in Christ-likeness. So that you would become increasingly holy. Yeah, but Pastor Mark, I always thought the will of God was where he wanted me to work and what kind of car he wanted me to buy, or who he wanted me to marry or not marry. 
Yes, all of those things fit into that category, but at the end of the day, they're all subsets of the larger category of, will this promote holiness? Because the will of God for your life, personally, is your sanctification. God, I don't think, loses a whole lot of sleep about whether or not you're going to own a Ford or a Honda. God, at the end of the day, I don't think is going to lose a whole lot of sleep who you marry, so long as you marry in the faith. I really, I really believe that. I could have married one of, I don't know, two or three dozen girls. <laughs> she's watching me right now. But she knows she's the queen. She knows she's the one that I married. And I know right now she's saying, and all the rest of them can eat my dust. <laughs> we get all torqued up about those kinds of things. We ask ourselves a simple question. Does it promote holiness? Does it promote holiness? What is the will of God for the Christian's church life? Yeah, there's, there's more to the will of God than just your personal life. Turn, turn a page, if you even need to do that, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and beginning in verse 12. L listen to the will of God for you as a member of the church. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, that's me, and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, that's still me, and to esteem them very highly in love. You hear that? <laughs> Preachers don't touch these verses. Because no preacher wants to stand in the pulpit and say to everybody else, you better esteem me highly in love. No preacher ever wants to do that. No preacher wants to stand in this pulpit and say, you need to esteem me highly in love. Nobody wants to do that. You, you do see what I'm doing, right? I don't think they do. 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. 14, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Can you imagine if we really did that? How about this? How about if we rejoice always? How about if we pray without ceasing? How about if we give thanks in all circumstances? Why? Because it's the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Isn't that amazing? 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. The will of God in my life personally is my sanctification. The will of God for this body of which you are a part is to rejoice, is to pray, is to give thanks, is to encourage the faint-hearted and admonish the idle and to be patient with everybody. That's the will of God for you right now as a member of this body. One more, if you would, and I appreciate your patience. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the circle widens. It's not just you. It's not just your body. But there's a will of God for you in the world as well. I call this the Christian citizen's life. So we've got the Christian's personal life. We've got the Christian's church life. And now the Christian's citizen's life. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's why Christians ought to be the best citizens on the planet until they're told to disobey God. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 
So what Peter is saying is, you as a Christian ought to be the best citizen you possibly can be, so that if you're accused of some form of sedition, you might silence the ignorant talk of people out in the world. Rather than joining forces with them, rather than looking exactly like them, which is what the church has been doing, and so nobody's looking at us on the inside and saying, oh, you're, you're not silencing the talk of ignorant people. No. In fact, we're now the ones being called the ignorant people because we look just like the world. These are, these are magnificent passages for our time. The Christian's personal life, the Christian's church life, the Christian's citizen's life, which we'll be looking much more at when we get to Romans chapter 13. Lastly, third, what are the characteristics of the will of God? So we've seen the discipline of discernment. We've seen the revealed will of God, the characteristics of the will of God. It's good. These are straightforward words. It's good. That means it's right. That which is right. That which is virtuous. Everything that God does is right. Everything that God does is good. Everything that God does is acceptable, or as the NIV translates, pleasing. It's literally what the word means. Acceptable means well-pleasing. The will of God is good, it's right, it's well-pleasing, and finally, you might expect it, it's perfect, meaning it's fully accomplished. It's without shortcoming. It lacks no quality whatsoever. You would expect that from a holy, perfect God. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this leads us straight to Jesus. Because there's not a soul that's ever lived save one who's ever lived the will of God perfectly. But in him, the Father sees us as having perfectly fulfilled his will. That's the glory of grace. That's living by faith in the mercies of God. What he requires of us, he provides. And so this all winds down to a trust in our risen Savior. John Stott, in closing, writes, Paul's appeal is addressed to the people of God grounded on the mercies of God and concerned with the will of God. Only a vision, hear this church, only a vision of his mercy. We need that vision of mercy. See it with me. Only a vision of his mercy will inspire us to present our bodies to him and allow him to transform us according to his will. We need to see the mercy of God, which is another way of saying we need the powers of discernment refined to know what the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God is. I leave you with this. It's from Eugene Peterson's translation of the New Testament. It's called The Message. I don't recommend it for studying but he can turn a phrase every once in a while. And I'm going to read for you Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 from the message 
as a way to wrap up this mini-section. So then, writes Peterson, strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way. The cross, the shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility that he plowed through, that will shoot adrenaline straight into your souls. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we we thank you for this precious word, and there's so much there in two little verses. We're grateful, O God, for the time and for the energy to walk through them. I pray, dear God, that we have done that in a way that is pleasing to you. We take great comfort being in Christ, that our offering to you is acceptable, that it is holy, and that it is pleasing. And we praise you for the work of Jesus Christ, not only in the past, but in the present And by faith, we believe in the future as well. Oh, dear God, for these dear saints, the beloved of your flock, I pray that together we would strive against conformity to this age. And instead, our energies would be dedicated to being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Why, Father? We want to know you. We want to know your will for us personally and corporately and even as citizens in this fallen world. Oh, Father, would you bless that adventure? Would you do so as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand, interceding on our behalf. Glory to his name. We pray it for his honor. Amen and amen.